invite you to join with me in scripture reading this morning. Um, wonderful passage uh, from Luke showing Jesus' inclusivity and how he loved all. From Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. I'll give you a minute to find that uh, in your Bibles, your phones, whatever. Um, it's on page 728 uh, in your pew Bibles. Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. I'll use this one. Thanks, Doug. Am I on? How about now? That sounds better. Well, it's good to be together. I think it's, it's actually especially good to be together when there's some sort of danger involved or risk. Something about coming together and fighting the elements that I think makes the family time together uh, even more meaningful. So... Great to, especially great to be with you this morning. Uh, Last week, we started a new sermon series, and this is going to take us to the end of uh, June until the summer starts. And we're calling this sermon series Meals with Jesus. And we're calling it that because we're going to be looking at passages throughout the Gospel of Luke where Jesus shares a meal with someone. And there's actually a lot of times that Jesus shares a meal with someone, uh, more than you might think. And uh, over the last six months, or even, even longer than that, we've been talking a lot about the, uh, the, the rich biblical idea of hospitality. Um, and the reason we've been talking about hospitality a lot is because we think that's an especially timely uh, biblical idea uh, for the church to uh, press further into to relate to a culture at this time. That we think there's something actually uh, really helpful and there's something really appropriate about the church taking a posture of hospitality and emphasizing that maybe more during this time than other, other times of our, of our country's history. And, and that could actually be a really strategic and loving way for the church to respond to our culture and relate to the culture. And... The great news about this is that, praise God, eating food is a big part of hospitality. Sharing meals together is a big part of uh, what it means to be hospitable. And so, uh, who better to learn from and what uh, better curriculum to take than looking at how Jesus chose to share meals with people? 
and to look at how he did it and throughout his life and throughout his ministry and to see what we can learn about uh, who Jesus was doing this with and how Jesus was doing this. And so this gives us uh, not only insights into the gospel, but I think insights into how we as a church can relate and be hospitable to a culture that is increasingly not Christian. And so Kevin asked the question repeatedly, and this is kind of the overarching question throughout the whole series. Uh, Last week he says, what does a community shaped by grace look like? If we are defining ourselves by the grace of God in our lives, what should a community that's defined by that, shaped by that, what should it look like? And the, the, the big idea that I want to just keep coming back to this morning, this, this sentence, this concept, this truth, this rich gospel truth, is that God graciously includes those that the world excludes. God graciously includes those that the world excludes. And so let's take a look at this passage that Doug read for us this morning. Um, it's a great little story from the life of Jesus. And, uh, and I think there's some, some, just some profound things that uh, as a church family we need to really look at and take seriously in our own hearts. So before we go further, let me just pray. And so, Father, uh, we come to this story probably for most of us, a familiar passage, familiar lines, verses that we can come to and and not give a lot of thought to because we've heard it a thousand times before. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, that you would, by your Spirit, that no matter where we're at this morning, no matter if this is the first time we're hearing this or the thousandth time we've, we're hearing this, that you would give us ears to hear. Father, we invite your Spirit to come and examine our hearts, to soften them, to give us the insight and the understanding into how we need to change and what lie we're believing about you and how we're loving things more than we love you. So we need you for that. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask for your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus has begun a gathering to gather a group of men. This is early on in his ministry. You know, he's 30 years old. He's been alive for a while, but now he's starting this more intentional time of ministry. And the first thing he's going to do, he's going to gather a group of men. These men are going to be known as his disciples. And these 12 men that he's going to select himself, uh, they're going to have this additional special title of apostle, that he's going to work with these 12 guys uniquely and spend the next really three years of his life every day with them, training them, teaching them, and he's going to give them this unique, what's what's, uh, the biblical term is, apostolic authority, or the theological term is apostolic authority, that these guys had unique authority to pass on the message of Jesus to the church. And so we hear these names like John and Peter and Matthew, and they kind of seem like holy guys. They're saints. But not at this point in the story, they're not. At this point in the story, they're just 
guys. They're ordinary men. Most of them fishermen. The most ordinary job that you could have. And so far, up until this point, it's a little bit tricky to track. Um, but if you kind of if you put the gospel narratives together, you'll see at this point, uh, most people would agree Jesus has chosen about six of the twelve so far. And now he's going to make his probably his most surprising choice. His seventh choice. He approaches a man named Levi. And the reason this is so surprising is because in verse 27, we're told right away that Levi was a tax collector. Now, if you were, uh, uh, if you were a first century Jew um, and you were hearing this story being told of what Jesus did, at this point, when you hear that Jesus approached a tax collector in his toll booth, you would immediately start feeling uncomfortable. You've heard this lots of times before, but tax collectors were these social outcasts. They were, they were the ones that often, out of necessity, or, uh, or maybe just greed, uh, they were cheating and getting more, uh, collecting more taxes than necessary. But it actually, it actually goes more than that. It goes beyond that. Um, there's more to the story. They weren't just cheats. They, people weren't just mad at them because they took more money than they were supposed to. They, it was much deeper. They were... They were viewed as the enemy. You see, they, most Jews were just longing for the day when the kingdom of God would supplant the kingdom of Rome. That, that they, they heard all these prophecies and had this understanding of Messiah. And, and they were thinking of it in terms of a physical kingdom where they would come and the, Israel as a nation would be reestablished and they would be returned to their rightful place. And so they understood Rome to be the one getting in the way of that. And the way they, they get what they want is by Rome falling. And so tax collectors were aligning themselves with the Romans, which means they're not just cheats, they're your enemies. They're, they're getting in the way of what you want. And it goes one layer deeper than that even, because not only is this what you want for yourself, but this is what you believed God wanted. That God wanted to reestablish the nation of Israel. And so it's God's intention, it's God's plan to, for Rome to fall and for Israel to rise. And so not only are you cheat, not only are you the enemy of the people, but you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. And so this would be a very strange person for someone who's suggesting that they're God to go and interact with. And so Jesus approaches Levi, who will later go on to be known as Matthew, to follow him. And without a word, at least we're told in this telling of the story, Levi agrees. And he steps out of his toll booth and he follows Jesus, leaving his life behind him. Now, if verse 27 was supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, then verse 29 should make you gasp. <laughs> because now Jesus isn't just talking to a tax collector. Jesus is sharing a meal, a great banquet with the tax collector. He's eating with him. 
New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says this regarding the role and significance of meals in this culture at this time. He said, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Anthropologists will point out that in all cultures, meals represent boundary markers. That you share, sharing a meal with someone is an invitation of intimacy and acceptance. You'll find that wherever you go throughout the world. That meals are much more than just eating food together. There's something intimate about it. There's something that, that uh, reveals who's being included and who's being excluded about how people are viewed in their society. And so Jesus is pushing this boundary. There's a boundary marker. Meals make or mark boundary markers, and Jesus is pushing it. He's pushing it. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the self-appointed religious leaders, aren't digging it. They're offended. And they start complaining. And they yell out to Jesus, Why are you eating with them? And Jesus replies, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And that's the end of our story. And we move on to another event in the life of Jesus. And so I want to make three observations about this. Again, we're, we're asking the questions, what does a community shaped by grace look like? The first observation I want to make, which is probably the most obvious, is that grace is for those on the margins. Grace is for those on the margins. Jesus repeatedly made a point to reach out to those that were on the societal margins. Earlier in this passage, he touched a leper. Now he's interacting with tax collectors. It's worth noting, you'll, you'll notice that the tax collectors were having a dinner, and who else was there? Other tax collectors. It was a large crowd of Levi and other tax collectors. Why are there other tax collectors there? Because they were the outcasts. You didn't have other people to invite to their party because the only people that they could invite was the other outcasts. And so it's a party of outcasts. Ordinary people wouldn't have anything to do with them. Jesus makes a point to reach out to people that ordinary people wouldn't reach out to or include. Every group of people establishes a set of norms. We do this as a society. We do this in our social groups. We do this in religious communities. What's normal is what's common. 
And what's common is what makes you in the middle. And if you're uncommon, if there's something about you that's uncommon, then naturally you just get pushed to the edges. It's not some grand scheme that someone goes out to do. It's just what happens in groups. Norms are established, and people that don't conform to the norms get pushed to the edges. And so I think this happens on all sorts of levels. Um, you know, so it's, it's, if you don't have a common way to, if you don't embrace a common way to live, that might push you to the margin. If you don't have a common interest, that might push you to the margin. If you don't have a common way to relate to others, that might push you to the margins. If you are, if there's something uncommon about what you're tempted by, that might push you to the margins. If there's something uncommon about a mistake, particular mistake you've made in your life, that might push you to the margins. If there's something uncommon about the experience you've had in life, that might push you to the margins. See, people get pushed to the margins when their experience is uncommon. Everything normal happens in the middle. And it can be very, very easy to be unconcerned with people on the margins. It's easy to be unconcerned by them because it's easy to not see them. Because you're in the middle. It's hard to look above the crowd to the edges. And so I was just thinking about this, and I think there's different ways in which, there's different levels in which people get marginalized. I think we get marginalized on a societal level. You know, the societal norm is to grow up with parents that provide a safe environment for their kids. That's a societal norm. But not all kids have this experience. The societal norm is to be able to provide housing for yourself. But sometimes people find themselves in situations where they don't have a house. The societal norm is to be able to remain psychologically stable. But sometimes mental health or addictions can make us more unstable than we ever thought possible. You can be marginalized in social circles. You know, if you aren't able to relate or converse with people in a certain way, you can get pushed to the edges. If you don't have certain interests, you can get pushed to the edges. If you don't have a certain type of personality, you can get pushed to the edges. The reality is that not everyone fits nicely into a, nice, into a tidy social group. I think you can also be marginalized by religion. Certain kinds of sins can become normalized. Certain times of struggles can become the normal. And if you struggle with a sin that's not normal, then religious groups, churches, can marginalize you just as easily as the world does. Churches have been guilty of this throughout the history of the church, of pushing people to the margins because your struggle is different than my struggle. But the good news of the gospel is that God graciously includes those 
that the world excludes. The good news of the gospel is that God graciously includes those that the church excludes. Grace is for those that are on the margins. Second observation I want to make is that grace goes out. It says in verse 27, Jesus went out to Levi. He made a point to go to Levi. Grace isn't static. Grace is dynamic. Grace doesn't mean that you're waiting at your door with your arms open, well-intentioned, ready to welcome anyone that happens to walk by that needs a hug. Grace is you kick your shoes off and you run as fast as you can when you see the prodigal son just barely on the horizon. You run out. See, the thing with people on the margins is that you can't see them unless you leave the center. You don't see them on your social media because you don't, probably don't follow them or are friends with them. You don't run into them while you're shopping because you probably aren't shopping at the same places. You don't see them at church because they feel uncomfortable at church. Grace means you have to go out and look. Now you might say to me, Jeff, our society has already established lots of systems and programs that helps people, like kids that are, are in homes that are unsafe, or, um, or for those that are experiencing homelessness, we have these structures in place. They're not just being left side to the margins. Yeah, we do have some of those. And guess who should be involved in them more than anyone else? See, I don't think that being involved with those that are marginalized is just a nice idea that we should think about. I think if you're not involved with helping those that are marginalized in our society, you need to think long and hard about why you're not doing that. Grace goes out. And it's inconvenient to go out. It's uncomfortable to go out. It intrudes in your life. It probably will interfere with your priorities. It will probably cost you something, money or time. But grace goes out. You know, Christians have been thinking a lot about this um, just recently because of... Uh, because of a grant that we've applied for as a church and some of the federal government's wordings on things and we have to choose to think about our position as a church. And one of these things is our position um, regarding abortion. And, uh, you know, it's our position as a church that life begins at conception. But I think the, the mistake that churches make is making a big deal about abortion without spending a lot of time thinking about caring for those that are pregnant and contemplating having abortion. See, a church, and there, praise God, there's lots of this going on in our community, but we, I think there needs to be more and more. Working with people that are uh, pregnant, that are, don't, that, uh, are teenage pregnancies. Working with... Um, foster agencies, thinking more seriously about adoption, getting involved in programs that work with those that are experiencing homelessness. There's all sorts of ways that we should be taking the idea that grace goes out 
I think more seriously. You know, we actually have a program here that I think addresses a lot of the ways that people get marginalized um, really well. It's called Meals Plus. Meals Plus is a ministry that provides meals and builds relationships with those that are living with HIV and AIDS. Many of these people are uh, also gay. And because of their disease and because of their lifestyle, they have been uh, marginalized because of uh, a lot of times their health doesn't allow them to work, and so they have a low income, and which means they're um, you know, living in t- parts of the city that are harder. There's uh, dynamics socially that have existed because of how, because of their lifestyle changes, they've been rejected. Um, and they've experienced all sorts of pain because a lot of their friends and their community died when HIV was more prevalent and first came on. And there's all sorts of pain and there's all sorts of way in which they're unseen. And our Meals Plus ministry just goes and it helps to build relationships and provide a meal. And if you're interested in getting involved in that, there's way more people that we could be serving. You can talk to me after the service if you want. And so we need to be thinking about, in our own lives, how can we be involved with those that are marginalized? It also means that we have to bring this lens into our social gatherings. If our first and only thought about who we hang out with is, would I enjoy spending my time with them? And, or, who is the most comfortable people for me to be around? If those are our first and only thoughts about who we spend our time with, we've got a problem. They're not bad thoughts to have. It's great. You need to spend time with people you enjoy spending time with and who you're comfortable around. Of course. But if that's repeatedly the only thought you're having about who you're spending your time with, or if it's repeatedly the first thought you're having about who you're spending your time with, then I think we need to do more pressing into grace. The gospel is that God graciously includes those that the world excludes. Last reflection. Grace is for those who are sick. The Pharisees' question for Jesus is, why are you hanging out with those sinners? Jesus' response is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. People become marginalized by religion when this truth is forgotten. It's interesting the difference that you can see between uh, verse 29 and verse 30. In verse 29, the description of the crowd is tax collectors and others. In verse 30, when the Pharisees are retelling it, it's tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) They added their little commentary onto the group. And so grace is for those who are sick. Now let me ask you a question. When I just said that, who did you first think of? Did you think of the people on the margins? They're the sick ones. (laughs) Or, Or was part of that thought yourself as well? The Pharisees' problem wasn't that they didn't think the tax collectors 
were sick or weren't sick. The Pharisees' problems was that they were blind to their own sickness. That was their problem. They weren't, it wasn't like Jesus was saying, hey guys, I'm a doctor, you guys are okay, I'm with the sick people, that's why I'm here. They're sick, I need to be with them. How can I heal people unless I'm with the sick people? So let me spend time with the sick people. I think Jesus was saying much more in his statement, and I think it was a lot more pointed at the Pharisees and their own blindness to their own sickness. But I think we sometimes read it as, well, Jesus was just spending time with the sick people. The point was to confront the Pharisees with their blindness towards themselves. The problem that you need to worry about is not getting others to recognize that they're sick. The problem that you need to spend a lot of time worrying about is your own tendency to forget that you're sick. And so grace is for those that are sick. And I want to end my time just with, with sharing a story. And I wasn't, I wasn't counting on there being kids in the room for this uh, today. And so I want to be careful how I tell this story. Um, but I think it's, it's a helpful illustration of how God responds to us. And I heard the, the story recently of a foster care ministry. And there is a couple that specifically took in kids that, have, that were coming from homes where there was abuse. And they were sharing the story that at one point they had taken in this 10-year-old girl and they called her Susie. That wasn't her name, but... And the first morning that they had her there, they woke up and they went into the room and they found that Susie had, had taken her own feces and wiped it on the walls. And they, they made a point to describe how they were feeling and then how they chose to respond. Of course, if you walk into a bedroom that just had this happen to it, there'd be a, a great temptation to get angry. It's disgusting. It's a mess. You know, you come in, the smell would hit you right away. And it would be very easy to respond with condemnation and with shame and with anger. That would be very easy to respond that way. But this couple didn't do that. They had a heart for people that were coming from these types of environments. They had an incarnational philosophy they described. They believed you had to get inside the mind of the child and understand them from the inside and to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And so the couple didn't scold Susie for this. And so they sat down her. Instead, they decided to sit down with her, and they said, We're not, we don't know why you're doing this, but this is something you need to do. Then you can do that, but can you just confine it to this section of the wall? And every morning, we're going to come into your room, and we're going to clean it up. We're going to put our latex gloves on. We're going to clean it up for you. And you just do that as long as you need to do that. And so this continued on for, for a while. Until, long, until eventually they built the relationship up with the girl that they were finally able to have a conversation with her about why she was doing this. And it came about that they found out that this girl was coming from a situation of abuse. And she learned that the only way that she could escape abuse 
was to defecate herself. And so something that is so disgusting and awful became a source of comfort for her. And so the parents went even further. And they said, if that's something that you need to do, then we're, gonna, we're actually going to help you do that. And they met her where she was at. They went into this room, this disgusting, uncomfortable room. They didn't go in with condemnation. They met her with her at, where she was at. They showed such great love for her. They didn't come in with a, what are you doing? They, they came in with a mindset of, how can I love you where you're at now? And I think this is a picture of the gospel for us. In, in chapter 3 of John, we're told this about Jesus. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. God didn't send his son to come into this room that we've made a mess in and to come in with, with anger and blazing and say, this is how I'm choosing to respond to you in your mess, with, with condemnation. He says he did not come into the world to condemn you. He came into the world to save us, to love us. He came into our mess. He got messy himself. And he loved us. When we can see that this is God's heart towards us, when we can see that this is how God has responded to us in our mess, we can trust God's love for us, his, the extent to which he's willing to show hospitality towards us. As you keep pressing into this truth, your heart will begin to become free. And just like this girl who had found something that was so unhealthy as a thing of comfort, she began to break free from that. That's what happens when we learn to trust God's love for us, is that these things that we're finding comfort in that are actually so disgusting and unhealthy, we, they can be, we come to see them for what they are. And we begin to become free from things, forces in our life like fear and shame and guilt and it actually frees your heart up to look up out of the center and into the margins and to see people that are out there. And not only does it free your heart up to do this, it actually will give you a motivation to do this. That the more you press into God's grace for you, the more you'll see how desperately you need to show grace to those that are in the margins just like you were. And so God graciously includes those that the world excludes. Who is on the margins of your life that needs grace? Let's pray. So Father, thank you that you did not send your son into this world to condemn us. Father, we know that you're the perfect judge and that you are going to one day make every wrong right. But the hope of the gospel is that your invitation to us today is to come. That you love us. Your heart towards us is love. 
And so, God, I pray that you would stir this truth in our hearts. Would you drive it deeper and deeper into us? Father, the, the temptation for a life of comfort is great. The temptation to, to constantly think of other people as sick and not ourselves is great. And so we need your help. Humble us. Give us eyes to see. Father, help our heads to lift up to see those that are around us, that are on the margins, that need your grace. Would you motivate us? Would you give us joy as we serve? And so, Father, we pray these things so that your kingdom, your right kingdom, not a, not a physical establishment, but a, the kingdom of God that comes in power as we, as we show grace to each other. Father, that that would be established here, that you would be building that through each one of us. So we pray these things for your glory. Amen.